Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. Hey all, Chris Jonu here, and I'm very proud to present this interview. I loved having a chat with this guy. I'm talking about Mr. Stephen Walton, the UK's most active growth capital investor. He's the CEO and founder of BGF, which he set up in 2011, which now has 14 offices across the UK and Ireland, with nearly £2 billion invested, and a team of 170. If that wasn't impressive enough, he was formerly one of the founding partners at the global private equity firm CCMP Capital, formerly JP Morgan Partners, Yep, and before that, managing director of Barclays Private Equity. Incredible, right? Super nice guy, and just had a lot of fun with it. I hope you do too. Cheers. So going going back, right, uh, I, the, the, the usual question I ask um, is, was there a mother or father that was entrepreneur? Yeah, so this is how far back I'm going to go. <laughs> wow. Do I have to go and lie down on a couch? It, it, it depends. Please do not cry. But um... <laughs> uh, How far? Um, no, my, my father, uh, actually, I suppose, entrepreneurial in the sense in the 1950s, he, um, he left the UK to go and work in what was then Rhodesia, so now Zimbabwe, and then South Africa. So... I guess it was uh, it was enterprising to go to a completely different part of the world to do something new, and he ran the Parker Pen Company in South Africa. Right. So um, that's a different type of adventure, as it were, going to a different country rather than setting up a um, a new business. Right, but definitely a, a, a global perspective for yourself very early on. Yeah, no, I was born in South Africa, so I oh. spent the first eleven years of my life in South Africa. Um, I went back, uh, well, subsequently I ended up being on the board of a South African and an Australian company. So I, it, it certainly has given me a perspective from a very early age of different parts of the world. And then I've lived in America as well. So I'm clearly now based in the UK, grown up initially in South Africa, have lived in, in America and have traveled extensively over the years. So, well, can I, just going back a little bit, so your father's running... Parker Pens in in South Africa, and so you, um, oh, so so this is why when you were growing up, yeah, and and then and then um, and then what was your your education? Uh, I've seen right here is sorry, I've got a cheat sheet here. It's fantastic. Usually I'm doing an interview yeah. live live in person, so I don't have it. Um, so um, high school obviously wasn't then in South Africa. So when when did the moving happen? And was that kind of uh, following your father's career? Yeah, well, he came back to the UK. Uh, so we as a family came back to the UK. This is in the 1970s. So I then went to secondary school here uh, and then on to university in the UK. And I suppose just sort of keeping with the entrepreneurial theme here, which must be something that is in people's DNAs. One of the, the sort of first business-related activities I got involved in were selling secondhand Parker pens. So you obviously know what my supply chain was. <laughs> oh, the, the merchandise, it's fantastic. 
Exactly. Um, this, this is unfortunately days before sort of eBay or so it was the, the old-fashioned way of selling. You know, the salesman with a product in his pocket. Yes, yes. And but it was uh, faulty merchandise from the line. So no, 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 definitely not faulty. It's you know high-quality merchandise at, at uh, very attractive prices. Uh huh. <laughs> you still still had that pitch up your sleeve. <laughs> um, and so. Um, it's exactly really what I was get, trying to get to. I'm just curious as to see, you know, how early the entrepreneurial bug starts with some people and and whether, you know, this kind of argument around, you know, is it born or, you know, it, can it can it be taught? And um, I'm, I'm still, Wait, it, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because when I came back, I mean, it's, I guess it's, you're, you're making me think about things I wouldn't typically think about. But when I was uh, a teenager, so having got that first experience of selling and uh, sort, of, sort of commercial instincts, I was very interested in creating things. So what I tried to do was to create board games. And you know, obviously there was Monopoly. So I came up with a number of different board games and actually made these games. I made all of the rules and the instructions. And then I used to send them off to Waddington's, which was a big toy manufacturer, so UK version of Hasbro. Mm -hmm. And with everything in it, having physically made it and come up with the rules, and then I'd get this nice letter back from Waddington saying, well, Thank you very much for your idea. I'm sure we went in some sort of vault or the dustbin. But it was a sense of how do you create something and can you get somebody to uh, adopt it and maybe this is going to make my fortune or create something. So they didn't. Well, <laughs> but yeah. it's certainly uh, part of being entrepreneurial is a willingness to try something. And if it doesn't work, you try something else. Uh, the phrase pivoting wasn't really coined at that stage, but that's the essence of a lot of what um, entrepreneurs do. So dabbling in commercial things at a very early age, seeing what worked, definitely interested me. And that sort of, I suppose, as a very early seed has sort of um, picked up over the years into something more, into something a bit more meaningful and tangible. So how did, you now? so where did the, um, was the, Degree in law, and was that kind of you know you know something like something my father would say like this is you know get educated and you know get a get a job in a bank or a law firm was that kind of how did you not um, take that entrepreneurial path that seemed like it was you know um, seems like it was inevitable now. Well, I um, when I left uh, when I left school to go to university, the reason I was interested in reading <coughs> law I, I was definitely stronger in terms of the humanities law struck me as a, and this is why i guess i was advised just speaking to people it's a very good degree to to do it's a good discipline and it's a good training and it will open up um further opportunities to you so as a stepping stone to who knows where it's a good stepping stone so i did that and i was sort of uh, i'm gonna do in and still today benefit, I think, from the fact of having a legal training. So coming out of university, the options then were, do I actually become a professional lawyer or would I do something different? And I decided, and this is the sort of branch of the law that's always interested me, which is advocacy and the bar. And I suppose there's another element of entrepreneurialism or one of the skills of entrepreneurialism, I suppose, is selling and marketing and pitching. And you need to be an advocate. And that's what um, a barrister is. So I left university to go to bar school and I became a barrister at the end of that. And then I was at an inflection point in terms of what do I do next? Do I become a barrister and start practicing? And 
perhaps going back to sort of earlier days, I've well, much as I enjoy the law and I like advocacy and I could see myself at the bar in my bones and in my roots, I'm much more commercially oriented. Mm-hmm. So rather than being an advocate, arguing on behalf of others and sort of prosecuting cases on behalf of others, what I really want to do is something much more commercially oriented, but I don't have a financial background. I, uh, I didn't want to go and become an accountant. So with that sort of decision point, I thought there isn't a huge amount of um, logic in now committing for five to 10 years to be a barrister if I want to do something commercial. What I should do is to actually get some commercial and financial training. So this is in the 1980s. And the best way of achieving that at that time was either to go into management consultancy or to join one of the American banks. And I decided the American banks sounded just a bit more fun and interesting. Uh, it gave me or would have given me the opportunity to go and live in America. So I thought that would be quite fun at that stage in my life. So I joined what was then called the First National Bank of Boston, which is a great institution and uh, went on a training program in London. And then they sent me to live in America where I carried on my training program. And given where Boston is located, a lot of the um, training program was sort of outsourced to Harvard. So we got a lot of Harvard professors coming in and a lot of case materials from them. And that was a fantastic way of learning about finance and business in a more formal and sort of academic setting, but also practically in terms of the things the bank did. Uh, They then very kindly sent me to Los Angeles. And so, you know, I had an opportunity to work on the West Coast and live on the West Coast of America and see what was happening there. And this is all in the very, very early days of what was going on in, um, in Silicon Valley. But it was sufficiently evident that new companies were being created, uh, new industries were emerging, and that just seemed like quite a fun place to start thinking about what that may mean for my career. And when I came back to the UK, I then had a clarity of purpose that, right, I do want to work in in business. I don't want to be a banker. There's nothing wrong with banking. I would much prefer to be working with businesses, for a business, running a business, um, investing in businesses. So I sort of channeled my efforts in that direction, and that led me to the world of investment and also to running a uh, running a company as the as the CEO, which is an investment that I made. So if I draw the line, it goes back to coming out of the law, thinking I wanted to be commercial, getting financial and commercial training. That took me to America, getting exposure to sort of younger, more entrepreneurial companies and confirming in my mind that's where I wanted to really spend my career and then various steps along the way to uh, to put that into into action yeah and um, I'm guessing you were quite it was quite novel to have you in the US at that time as well you had the accent yeah no it was a big advantage yeah <laughs> so the, you know as you say novelty value yeah so we got a Brit yeah I, I lived in Boston which is an easy place to live as an Englishman mm-hmm. Uh, Boston has it's got elements of London to it and sort of cobbled streets and old parts of um, the city around Back Bay. And that was a really good start uh, in terms of how to go to America and learn to live in America because it was, you know, it's called New England for a reason. And then when I went to California, that was completely different. Yeah. And so I'm glad that I went to New England and then to California rather than the other way around. Right. And, and then obviously a different uh, perspective on life after that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this is, and you'll appreciate this being uh, in Australia, when the sun shines every day, I mean, people have a different attitude. (laughs) So I was in my early 20s living in California, 
the the bank gave me an open top car, an apartment <laughs> on the beach. And I used to drive to work. I thought, well, what's not to like about this? Yeah, absolutely. No, I lived I lived in the US for for most of my my high school while my father was working for Kellogg. So I was just get I was just kind of running through the the stories in my head at the same time around the the Australian guy. I was in in the Midwest and the, the novelty factor. So I was just I was just I was just putting it together in my head. Uh, but yeah, with the, I probably did have the uh, the drop top in the vision too. <laughs> It's, it's just, I mean, I think about it now, I think about my children, um, it, it really is, you know, it's pretty lucky to find yourself in that sort of situation, being paid whilst you're being trained, mm-hmm. and in a nice part of the world. Awesome. And, that, that, and actually, if you take a broader perspective now, the next generation of entrepreneurs, we need to find ways to give them that encouragement, mentoring experiences, because it really is formative. And then it, uh, it sort of has a big impact on people's lives and what they can achieve. Is it, is it, is it some of the things that you like have brought into your business that you, you know, kind of, um, believe came from that, you know, the, the stint in the U S I mean, um, for instance, I just, it just comes to mind where, you know, typically Americans, are. um, not afraid to be proud of their accomplishments where, you know, say Australians or, you know, the English were a bit more reserved about, um, you know, celebrating our wins, you know, is it? Oh yeah, yeah. I absolutely. I mean, I've, <clears throat> I've obviously worked and lived in America and prior to, uh, setting up BGF, I worked for JP Morgan for close on, uh, 10 years. And I, I really do like the American sort of outlook on life. Uh, it is unabashedly optimistic. Sometimes it's unrealistically optimistic, but I prefer to get out of bed in the mornings and think what you can achieve rather than what you can't achieve. And that, that is, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's certainly true in America. Um, you know, there is that sense of the art of the possible and you've got to think big and sometimes you can achieve big things. And it's, if you recognize how difficult it is to develop businesses and to be an entrepreneur, there are so many reasons why it's going to be unsuccessful. And if you listed them all down and you rationally went through them, nobody would ever start anything. And I think the American psyche is geared up to thinking, well, that may be true for everybody else, but it's not true for me. So that sort of can-do attitude, I think, is incredibly powerful, and it is infectious. So having had a, given that I suppose that's my anyway in terms of the way I would look at the world in an early stage in my working life being in America it sort of just turbocharged what was probably latent there anyway and just made me think okay well why can't I go and do all sorts of um, interesting things and really create opportunities that come out of that because I I do believe in life and I have one (laughs) one key philosophy as an investor which is don't back somebody who's unlucky because right. if they've been unlucky before, they're probably going to be unlucky again. Because my definition of luck, which I, I, I would guess I would very much apply to myself, um, that, you know, when people say somebody's lucky, all that means in my mind is that an opportunity presented itself and they grabbed it. And many people in life talk about doing things, but they don't actually do it because they perhaps weigh up the pros and the cons and they don't sort of jump into it. That mentality, I think, is really powerful in America. I love it. Yeah. Um, so... Um, switch, switching gears, for, I suppose, for a minute. Um, Ten years at J.P. Morgan. Can't skip all of that. Um, what were some yeah. of the What were some of the highlights or you know um, uh, lowlights? I suppose some of the learnings, um, if not if not um, the good stories. Well, one of the I mean, J.P. Morgan 
uh, you know, as, as is clear today, is one of the real survivors and winners in the global financial world. I mean, it's hugely powerful. It's become more powerful through the financial crash because it survived while people like Lehman Brothers have, um, have disappeared. So being inside, and it's a huge bank, being inside an organization like that, um, you really get a sense of the power of big business and of big banks and financial institutions. Um, and that's, that's just quite uh, eye-opening in terms of what, uh, what the major financial companies in the world can do. And in many cases, some of these businesses, and it's true today with some of the, the, the sort of large tech startups, you often find that private companies maybe have more scope to make dramatic changes than even, uh, than even governments. So I think that was, that was an interesting eye-opener. Uh, the quality of the people at JP Morgan is incredibly high. So just the sort of caliber of people that you are working around. And I remember in terms of the, the sort of graduates and the MBAs that we would take in, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been hired. So they were hiring people who had a lot smarter than me with great backgrounds, incredibly driven. So again, I think that was another element. You've got, you've got a highly ambitious group of people in a very sort of um, prestigious and powerful financial institution, hiring really good people. And the obvious lesson that I've learned in business over the years and how do you scale and how do you get success, and it's blindingly obvious, it's you hire good people. If you can create the environment to hire really good people, you will end up with a really good business. Um, and that I saw firsthand in JP Morgan and was involved obviously in the private equity side, so that's a small part of what they did. But uh, I think it just reinforced some of the things that we probably all know. And I just saw them firsthand. So that's at a macro level. I think at a um, micro level, just in terms of, and th this is not just true of American PE firms, but it, I think at that stage, it probably was a very, very analytical investment banking type of approach to, um, to solving complex problems in terms of all of these financial deals. So it was a very good way to develop technical skills. And I, I, I'm of the view that you should never stop learning in life generally and in your business career, and you should be pushed. So uh, getting exposure to different types of transactions in different parts of the world, different structures, different ways of understanding business models was sort of intellectually challenging as well as physically exhausting because I spent a lot of time going around the world so what did I take away from that? Um, better technical knowledge and appreciation of, um, you know, having very, very good people around you, coupled with this sort of American uh, attitude that you can do anything. And that, that led to individual transactions that we did. Um, and, you know, clearly some of those are very successful, some of them are not so successful. So again, you sort of look at that in the mix. And if I was to pick out one transaction that I did um, when I was at JP Morgan, which took up a huge amount of my time and it was incredibly stimulating, was a, was a carve out and an acquisition of a company called um, BOC Edwards, uh, which is the global leader in the um, manufacture of equipment for the semiconductor industry. So it's highly technical, a lot of PhDs in this business. And I became the chairman of that company and it's got operations all over the world, big operations in South Korea, in Japan, in America, um, in the UK and Germany. So to be able to sit on top of an organization like that, representing the investor who owned the company, but also chairing the board and working with the management team and helping in that capacity as this business sort of expanded globally 
was really, really stimulating and fascinating role on a personal level. And it was extremely, um, I suppose, challenging, but then successful as an investment. And we took that company public in the US. We then sold it to Atlas Copco, uh, one of the largest industrial conglomerates in, uh, in Europe. So to me, if I look at my career, that was a sort of textbook, private equity type of deal, carve out from a large corporate uh, then a uh, standalone as an independent company, uh, building it across the world, floating it and selling it. And you talk about a business that's sort of worth um, uh, getting towards a billion dollars. So it's a sort of decent sized company as well. Wow. Wow. Um, there's, there's a couple of things I wanted to un- unpack in, the, in, in what you've just said there, particularly around hiring smart people and uh, the fact that you said, you know, you were surrounded by PhDs and still kind of were in charge, um, most likely because you had the soft skills as well. Um, but how is how do like you know I I interviewed a guy Larry Lopez. I'm not sure if you know the guy. He's uh, used to run Silicon Valley Bank, and mm. um, and he said that that was one of the downfalls he saw with entrepreneurs, particularly in Australia, where um, a lot, sometimes they did not get the bit about hiring people that were smarter than them, and that they you know kind of still felt the need to make sure they were the smartest person in the room and that was a problem. How do you, how do you, have you seen that I suppose and how, how do you get past that and what are the benefits of, 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 of hiring smart people that are well, they, perhaps um, not obvious I guess? Yeah, well I'd I look at that question in two ways. One, as I look at um, businesses that, that we invest in and, and again I think, I think it's always quite valuable to have a few simple metrics that you start with, uh, together with your own judgment and gut feel, and then you do all of the detailed analysis because you can get lost in detail and fail to see what is really obvious. So in this regard, one of the things I always look at with a business, if we were backing them, is who owns the shares? If one person owns all the equity, I would be very, very skeptical mm-hmm. because that tells me two things. It tells me the person who, who owns 100% of the shares think they know more than absolutely everybody else and they're the only person that needs to be incentivized with equity. Uh, probably that individual is going to have a very big ego and is going to be a very dominating character and probably not good at building a team. So that's, that, that I think is symbolic because you're going on to the second part of that question. Nobody, no matter how talented you are, can do something on their own. Uh, well, they can. They can be a sole trader. But in terms of building a big business or building a successful business, you've got to be able to build a team. So evidence of a mental willingness to share and work with others, I think, is the first step for any entrepreneur. Um, my uh, my eldest son is just uh, setting up a business. So one of the things I said to him is I would never back you individually. You've got to have a partner because you've got to start at least with two because it's lonely. And you need somebody to bounce ideas off and develop things with. So that's the first sign or signal, and then you go on to the second point, which is, uh, and again, there's another young guy I was talking to the other day who just left, um, uh, who just left a very secure role at PwC to set up his own business, and he was asking me about that. And this is a passion he's had since he was a he was a teenager, and he sent me a, a WhatsApp this week saying, "Really exciting! I just hired my first person." And that's you know there are now two people in this, or three people in this company, not uh, not two. And that's another signal, the, the willingness to get somebody else to follow you in your dream, whatever it happens to be, no matter how crazy it is, is really, it's both 
incredibly liberating and powerful that somebody else shares your ambitions for a business. And of course, it's uh, it's something that enables you to grow. So that's the second step. Then you get into, okay, well, we've got more than two or three people. We've got real traction here. We're trying to build a bigger business. The key then is to be able to go out and hire the best people you can afford for the roles that you have available and not just to recruit in your own image, not to try and uh, sort of recruit people who are just going to make you feel good because they agree with you, but who will challenge you in a constructive way. And when you get that right, then you have, then you're onto something that's really, um, really powerful. And it, it all sounds so incredibly obvious. The difficult bit is actually following it up. Because most entrepreneurs say, yeah, yeah, hiring good people, absolutely, I would do that. The willingness to do it, when you suddenly are interviewing somebody who's going to come into your business and may be better at many of the things that you've already done, that's hard. And it requires a degree of self-awareness that I think all of us need to keep working on self-awareness. Because it's quite hard to say, you know what, you're better at this than me, even though I, even though I set it up. But the reason I'm going to hire you is that I can go and do something else that I'm better at than you. And together, we will achieve something that's more uh, more substantial. Absolutely. Um, and the, how, how important is the, you know, the, the, the investing in people side of things? So I, I, um, I was lucky enough to just do the intro. I didn't do the interview with uh, Eric Yuan from Zoom, founder of Zoom. And he said, like, it was absolutely for him about getting the right investor because um, if he had somebody that fell in love with the idea, the idea could change 10 times, but he was after somebody that was willing to back him. Um, what's your take on, I suppose, business versus people? Or the people well, I think you, you're, trying to find a, you're trying to find a combination of the, uh, of the two. I mean, as an investor, you've got to have a good relationship with the company you're investing in and vice versa. I think if it's seen as very transactional, that it's just about the cost of the money, then I think you'll end up with a very transactional relationship. And I, I don't, those are definitely not the most powerful. So I think it would just, it's, a, it's a sort of uh, related to the point about hiring good people. If you're hiring good people, they clearly um, have the same um, sense about what you may be able to achieve with the business and they're prepared to sort of um, put their money with their mouth is in the most obvious way by going to work there. I think with investors, it's the same thing. What is it that you can attract them with? What is it about your particular idea or business that they 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 think is appealing, scalable, can be successful? And if you marry that up with what their capabilities are, with what their real risk appetite is, then again, you'll have a good combination. And where you sometimes see challenges uh, is where you have misalignment and a mismatch. So if I'm hiring somebody, uh, I promise the earth and I can't deliver the earth, I'm going to have a very disappointed um, member of the team because they came in on a false premise. If you raise capital uh, from an investor and, again, you're promising them the stars and they think you're going to deliver the stars and ultimately you don't, now you've got a disenchanted investor. So it's, you've got to have this right combination between realistic without being, you know, without being so realistic that you don't have ambition and you're not pushing and challenging yourself and then finding that your team of people working for you and the investors supporting you share that, which doesn't mean that everybody sort of looks at the world through rose-tinted glasses and there is no sense of realism. It does mean, okay, we think this can be done if we make the following steps. 
It doesn't mean those steps will be done. It doesn't mean it's going to be successful. But we agree that this is a plan that we together want to follow. It's a plan that we can support as investors. It's a plan you as a management team um, are really willing to get behind. So, you know, wearing my BGF hat, the thing we talk about over and over and over again is alignment of interest. Do we know what the entrepreneurs are trying to do who we're backing? And are we on the same page? And are they on the same page as us? And if you get that right, you have a chance of success. If you get it wrong, it's just a question of how long it takes to fail. Right. Well, this, I think, is a pretty good segue in, in, into your fund here. $2 billion invested. Um, no small piece of change there, mate. Um, but what was refreshing to me was just, you know, reading your, you know, your the what we do section of your site and and some of the um, the points you have here around, um, I, I would say, my, like, okay, I'll read them. Minority investors, so you're in control. Um, this long-term thinking, and, and we're not here to worry about the exit so far. How is this? Was this just an evolution of of what you? Um, saw missing in the market or how did this come about and obviously it's working for you so if you could just kind of talk about it for a minute yeah i mean i think in looking at the market opportunity when we um set up bgf you've got to, you've got to assess where are the potential gaps i mean what why um you know why is bgf actually necessary and the if i look at the sort of segments of the funding market here in its big buckets, you've got startups. So sort of completely from scratch, where are they going to raise funding from? And I think the best source of funding for that, certainly looking at it from a UK perspective, is from private investors and high net worths because they clearly have the ability to write a check. We have very favorable tax treatment here in terms of promoting um, private investors to, uh, to back startups. That part of the UK ecosystem is pretty healthy. And we are creating hundreds of thousands of new businesses every year. Now, many of those are clearly not going to stand the test of time, but they are actually being set up. So that, that that's a good thing. And we want to sort of keep sustaining that. And this sort of angel environment and ecosystem, I think, is an essential component of the sort of whole entrepreneurial landscape because you've got to be able to have the, the startup funding in order to then get to the next stage, which is when you're starting to bring in institutional um, investors. And the institutional investment market, I suppose, splits into two. You've got the classic venture market, which you will know very well. The model there is to try and find the unicorn, the one in 10 that's going to make you 10 or 20 times your investment to um, compensate for the many investments you touch that are not going to be successful. And the venture industry is characterized by some unbelievably successful firms like Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins. And a lot of other firms that just don't make money because they don't find that unicorn. So it's a very different type of investment strategy. It is it's quite binary. You then skip further ahead to the private equity industry, um, which obviously I know well from my own personal background. That tends to be much larger checks. It's controlling businesses. It's using financial engineering. It's a very strong strategic and commercial direction for a business with a view to a sale. And that sale will be either to another private equity firm or an IPO or to trade within a relatively short space of time. That industry is highly competitive, it's very liquid, but it's very successful. And as an asset class, it does well. The bit There is a bit in the middle, which is what BGF was set up to address, that we think is actually a very interesting and emerging asset class. And hence, one of the reasons I'm in Australia next week, which is the provision of long-term growth capital 
to a broader range of smaller companies. This could include some of these very fast, high-growing businesses that venture firms may succeed, but we're not looking just for a unicorn. If we get a unicorn, great, but what we're actually looking to do is to build up a broadly-based and diversified group of growth companies. And the key differentiators between what we're doing in the venture industry and the private equity industry, the venture industry is looking for the unicorns. If we get one, that's a bonus rather than what we're looking for. We're looking for breadth and diversification. The private equity industry is looking for control. And we are not. We are minority investors. And we will invest for the long term. And the reason we can do that is because we invest off the balance sheet. So we have a long-term pool of funding that enables us to make long-term investment decisions. And that means the returns that we will generate will be in between what the venture industry and the private equity industry will do. Uh, we'd like to think it's more predictable than the venture industry because it's not all binary. It's not going to be as high as the private equity industry because we don't control these companies and we're not using leverage. And our view which we think is borne out in the UK is that there is a big, big pool of companies that we want to address. And this is a good way to do it. They shouldn't be funded with bank debt because they're growth companies and bank debt is the wrong source of capital. If they're funded with private equity, they're put on an, uh, on an accelerated timetable to sell. Mm. And if they're funded by venture, it's almost sort of hit and miss. And I think that theory, if you want, is now getting more traction. So the fact that we started in the UK. We were then asked by the Irish Sovereign Wealth Fund to go into Ireland. We have then helped the um, Canadian banks and some of the Canadian pension plans to set up in Canada. We're now helping in Australia. It tells me that if you take a global perspective, there is an asset class here in terms of growth companies and the growth uh, economy that needs equity funding to help it grow. And this is going to help us develop the sort of industries of the future. So it is a core component in any economy around the world. And BGF in the UK is effectively like a giant incubator in terms of this idea. Does it work? We're nearly nine years old now. And we've sort of, in that period of time, turned ourselves into the most active growth investor in the world. I mean, we make more than an investment. Incredible. Incredible. I, I can't help but... Like think when I'm reading, um, you know, this long-term investment strategy, and and we're here for the pace that, as that you know, that suits you as you grow. That this is just a better model for the entrepreneur. And I, I have you have you is that noticeable on the other end that you know that um, you know entrepreneurs have got room to breathe and not so burnt out with with a you know such a supportive kind of um, model. Yeah, I, th I think, uh, I mean, clearly not everything we touch turns to gold, but in terms of the resonance of the message, it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of our, you know, even after nine years, we're still meeting many, many companies never heard of us and have never heard about equity investment. So awareness is still pitifully low um, in terms of why would you have equity investors? And that's not true in the tech scene because they're obviously all backed by, um, by outside investors. I think what resonates with private entrepreneurs is keeping in control. And it's very, you go back to the sort of DNA of an entrepreneur, it's very emotional. Why do you set up a business? You've got to have a passion about something. You want to do it yourself. You want to build something on your own. And that is the core driver for all entrepreneurs. So as an investor, you need to recognize that. If you come in and say, well, it's a great idea. I'm not going to take your company over. 
you've sort of disempowered them. You've almost sort of taken away their, their baby, as it were. So for us, what really cuts through is the sense that we are a minority partner. So you are in control. You own still more than half of the company. What you've got is somebody alongside you now as a partner who is a, a you know, deep-pocketed financial partner. So we will combine well with you. You've got to run the company, and we're going to um, to support you. And if you put that in sort of very sort of different terms, somebody relayed this to me, an entrepreneur, and he said, right, I get it. So it's a bit like having your big brother in the playground. So if anything happens, your big brother is going to be there. <laughs> I thought that's a great analogy. It is good. It's good. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of your time. Uh, thank you very much for uh, jumping on the call, Stephen, and I hope I get to, to catch you when you're here um, either Monday or, or, or next time. Um, what is kind of your your your, your, parting, your parting words, I suppose, and, and um, you know what entrepreneurs should be getting in touch and which ones should be leaving you alone? <laughs> uh, well, I think, we, I think we're just beginning. So I'm extremely optimistic about, um, about the future. One of the things in the UK that I'm often asked, and this is you know, sort of politicians and stakeholders, and they say, well, why hasn't Britain got, where's Britain's Google? So sort of politicians are obsessed with where is Google and where is Facebook? And I think they're asking the wrong question. If you look at the the agenda now in terms of the environment and in terms of sustainability, that is racing ahead and it's obviously touching the sort of public zeitgeist around the world with young people and everybody else. So I think my challenge in the UK is let's forget about Google and Facebook. Why can't Britain actually create the world's biggest green company? Right. That's what we should be aspiring to. And why would I pick that out? Because the UK has some automatic competitive advantages today. And I would look at the offshore wind industry. We generate more offshore wind in Britain than any other um, any other place on the planet. So we're already in this industry. We're already doing things. What are we doing as investors strategically to say, okay, this green agenda, we're really going to grab that by the scruff of the neck and we are going to create through a combination of technology and policy, the green businesses that are not just uh, nice things to do, but are commercially very attractive um, operations. So in the way that Silicon Valley has absolutely built up the whole e-commerce and internet and social media platforms, which have had incredible power, let's think not how we're going to sort of play catch up. Let's get ahead in what are the new industries of the future. And I would pick out that one. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, yeah, you can't be looking at your competitors all the time, can you? Not going to get anywhere. No, you haven't got time to do that. You've got to look at what you're doing. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, and um, hope to catch you soon, mate. All right. Cheers, Chris. Have a good weekend. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at an event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling. Keep hustling.